Well, good evening. Thank you. Uh, it is good to be back. My name is Justin Anderson, and uh, probably half of you have no idea who I am. Um, but I used to be a pastor here, and uh, it, is, it is very good to be back. Um, I was part of the team that planted this church, and uh, we are in the process and have been for the last six months or so of transitioning uh, to San Francisco to plant a new church right in the middle of the city. Um, the question I get most often is where in San Francisco exactly, um, and, and honestly the answer is the dead center. The, the very middle of the city, um, the most recognizable part, uh, neighborhood that we'll be in is the Haight-Ashbury district, um, but Golden Gate Park stretches from the ocean all the way into the city to the middle of the city. If you put a dot at the end of Golden Gate Park and drew a circle around it, that's where we're headed. So um, I want to give you a little update on San Francisco, kind of where we're at and what we've been doing. Um, for January and February, I've been on a kind of semi-sabbatical. I've uh, been working kind of half-time. A lot of that has been fundraising, uh, making connections in the city. We've We've been going to San Francisco about once a month uh, to meet pastors and meet any connections, people that um, you guys have suggested that we should connect with. We've tried to meet with whomever we can. Um, that's been going really well. Uh, the pastors there, though they are few um, who uh, love Jesus and, and preach Jesus, they are a, a great group of guys. They've been very welcoming, encouraging uh, to us being there. And so we've been doing that. We've been raising money. Um, we uh, have to raise a lot of money. It is an expensive, expensive city. My wife and I were doing some apartment hunting when we were there this last weekend. We found a place we love, two bedroom, one bath, about 1,000, 1,100 square feet, just what we wanted in the neighborhood we wanted. Um, and it was going to cost us $9,000 to move in uh, between first, last, and security deposit. So uh, it's incredibly expensive to live there. That place was uh, $3,250 a month. Uh, for 1,100 square feet. So uh, it's very expensive, but uh, so we've got a, a lot of money to raise. So uh, we have been working hard on that. Uh, people have been very generous. Redemption has been very generous, um, but we've still got a ways to go. So we've been moving that. Uh, we've got people moving to the city. We've got a team, a uh, very small team at this point. Uh, myself and my family, Pastor Ryan Elin, who does communities here, and his family. Um, and then some of you may know uh, Pastor C.J. Bergman, uh, who has been a worship pastor here in the valley for um, several years at Highlands Church and most recently at Mission Community Church um, way out in western New Mexico. Uh, and, uh, and so he uh, and his family actually just moved yesterday uh, up to Manteca, which is about an hour outside the city, um, and they're looking for an apartment and, and to move in there. So we've got kind of a small group. We've got one guy on the ground, several people here praying about it. Um, and so we're excited about the team that God's putting together. Um, so please be praying for that transition. In fact, I've got a couple of uh, prayer requests, if you, if you don't mind, if you're into uh, praying. Um, one is just praying for the logistics of that transition. Uh, it just between we have to sell our house, the Elons have to rent their house, um, and, and the timing of that to be able to move in there, find a place, and, and do all that. The logistics are, uh, are not easy. Fundraising is a huge prayer request. Um, uh, pray for the other churches in the city, not um, 
for some pious, that sounds good for me to ask you to pray for other churches. Um, but it's really important when you plant a church to have um, a healthy environment in which to plant. The success rate of church plants goes way up um, when there's other good churches in the area that can support and, and be of help. And so there's a couple of really good churches that we've connected with. I want to name them uh, so that you can be praying for them by name. Reality Church, uh, City Church, Redeemer City Church, Christ Church, and Epic Church are all Jesus-loving churches in the city um, that have been very gracious with us. So please be praying for them. Um, and then lastly, uh, I would ask that you pray the prayer that my three-year-old has been praying for six months now, and that's um, that the people in San Francisco would love Jesus, okay? And so uh, that, that's the key to, to what we're doing. That's why we are um, making the difficult decision to leave people that we love and a church that we love and ministry that has been incredibly fruitful um, to go and start over again from scratch uh, because people in San Francisco need to love Jesus, and that's um, for their good. And so we would just pray that simple prayer um, that, that you would join us in that. Um, and then just a, another piece of that, um, at, at 10.02 a.m. every day, uh, my alarm on my phone goes off, um, and that's the time when hundreds of people across the country really pray for San Francisco, and it's a reference to Luke chapter 10, verse 2, um, which says the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray, pray for workers for the harvest, essentially. And, uh, and so we pray for San Francisco at 10.02 a.m., every day, and so I would encourage you all to uh, join us in that. So there's a, there's a lot of work to do and a significant amount of spiritual oppression, attack um, in that city that every pastor that we've talked to has said, man, just be ready, because uh, there's, there's some uh, stronghold here. So uh, please, please be praying for those things. Will you do that? Okay, excellent. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful for seven fantastic years here of ministry and, and uh, are confident that there are several decades more um, in, in the future. And pray for the elders, the leaders, missional community leaders, the members, the attenders, the non-believers here uh, connected to redemption and around the city. That you would continue to move in power, that the spirit would um, lead and guide. And Lord, we would see continued fruit for the sake of the kingdom. Pray this evening, that you would open the word to us, um, that a passage that may seem familiar, concepts that may at this point feel repetitive, uh, would be applied to our hearts afresh and anew. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, turn to Galatians chapter four. If you need a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand. Uh, one of the guys will bring you a Bible, uh, so just raise it up high. If you don't own a Bible, um, you do now uh, on, on Ricardo's dime. Uh, and, and so I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, if you do own a Bible and you just forgot, just give it back. Jesus is watching. We are doing Galatians 4, 8 through uh, chapter 5, verse 1, though there's a big section that uh, we will not look at uh, for, for what I hope is an obvious reason in a moment. Um, and, and I, I think at this point, as we are however many weeks into this study of Galatians, that um, it should be no surprise to you that we are talking about the gospel again, over and over and over and over again, we're talking about the gospel. And so um, Paul seemed to think that this was an important issue for the church here um, to get beaten into their heads. Um, and actually, Martin Luther would agree. Luther said the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. 
Most necessary is it that we know this article well, that we teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually, right? Because, here's the deal, we, we may look at this and go, okay, I get it, we get the gospel, we get the implications of the gospel, we get idolatry, we get, we get all this stuff, can we move on to the deeper things? Can we, can we get some more meat? Can we stop talking about the gospel? Yes, we can stop talking about the gospel um, as soon as you stop sinning. Okay, because at the heart of, and what Paul's trying to communicate to us here this evening is, at the heart of our sin, at the heart of our rebellion, is a fundamental disbelief in the gospel, each and every time. And so the moment that we continually and without fail remember and believe in the gospel every time, we continually need it beat into our heads from different angles and different ways and, and different metaphors. And, and so this is what we're going to see this evening. Um, Paul talks about um, the gospel in, in terms of slavery. And, of course, Ricardo made a comment this week about how he's letting me talk about slavery. It was super inappropriate. But, um, <laughs> but, but th- this, is, this is what we, what we need to address tonight. So, um, in, order, in order to make sure we're all on the same page here, because I don't want to assume we've all been here through this series, in order that we're all on the same page, I, I want us to have the same basic framework uh, for what it means, for what the gospel means, and I'll just take seconds to do this, what the gospel means and what does it mean for us to believe in the gospel and walk, um, as Paul said a couple weeks ago, walk in line with the truth of the gospel. So, the big picture version is um, that there is this big story to the Bible and big story to the universe, the creation, fall, redemption, restoration story. And you've been t- hearing us talk about this for seven years now, some of you, um, and, and it's still important, and here's, here's why. Um, when we profess faith in Christ, part of what that means is um, I, I'm going to perhaps for the first time acknowledge the fact that the story of the world, the true story of the world, is this creation, fall, redemption, restoration story, and I am going to knowingly enter into it and live out the implications. What it means is I, I now believe that the story that has come before me of God creating everything perfect, that God came first, God created humanity, God created humanity to have a perfect relationship with him, with each other, and with the rest of creation, um, that there was rebellion against that um, perfection uh, that that created a a break in our relationship with God, and essentially the entire uh, arc of history, all of the Old Testament, culminating in Jesus, is God redeeming back to himself his creation. Okay, so we get creation, fall, Christ's redemption, Christ's death and resurrection, uh, and then the restoration of all things, the one day that we look forward to when Christ comes again and restores all things back to his intention. So when we say, yeah, I'm with Jesus, I'm a Christian, and I believe the gospel, it means I'm going to knowingly step into that story, the story we've all been a part of, and yet just don't acknowledge, right? We can't step out of what the true story of the world is, but we knowingly step into it. And what it means is this. I know that um, God created, that God is sovereign, that God, God is in charge, that God is first, that we are in rebellion against God, that the satisfaction of that rebellion was not us trying to earn our way back, but the satisfaction of that rebellion was Christ himself coming to redeem us, God paying the price for our sin, and that I am going to walk in line with that. So what that means is we can look at Jesus' life 
as the perfect example of what it means to walk in line with the truth of the gospel. Okay, so here's the simplest illustration I can think of. Um, if you've ever seen a, a relay race, um, you know that um, one guy's got the baton and he's running and the other guy's in front of him and he's kind of starting to do this. And it, as soon as that baton is passed, where, where does the new guy go? Does he go like this? No, what would happen if he did that? They'd lose. Don't overthink it. They would just, <laughs> they'd lose. Okay, so if he got the baton and was like, nah, stands sound good, you, you just, that'd be the end of the race. You, you lost, okay? The idea is you get the baton and you continue to run in the direction that the guy before you was running. That is what it means to walk in line with the truth of the gospel. Seeing, hearing, understanding Jesus's life perfectly aligned with the story of the gospel, seeing what he did, the decisions he made, the ethics that he taught, the, the behavior that he had, and going, okay, that's what it means to be fully and completely human. That, that's what it means to walk in line with the truth of the gospel. That is the best, most satisfying, most joy-filling, most loving, most loved life possible is that one. I'm going to walk in line with that. I am going to get the baton and go in the same direction. Okay, so that's, that's the simplest version, uh, simplest illustration I can come up with of what it means to walk in line with the truth of the gospel. So when Paul here in Galatians 4, verse 8, says this, he goes, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now, there's, there's two sides to this. One is, Paul assumes that the people that are reading this are believers. In that, he says, when you did not know God, assuming now that they do, right? So that's an assumption that perhaps was safe for Paul with these people that he's sending a letter to, but it certainly is not safe for us here today. I know that there are many of you here who would willingly go, hey, I'm here for her. I'm not a Christian, whatever. Like, I, I, my friend invited me. I finally came. I'm not a Christian. Great. I think Paul speaks to you as well. But there, there is an assumption here that there was a, a, a former and, and there's a present. There's a former life, and, and now there's a present life, and there's a difference between the two. And he uses what is a really, really strong word, in, enslaved. Enslaved. And I think, for most of us, we don't look at our former lives, those who are Christians, don't look at our former lives um, as being enslaved. And, and we, we may look at it as immaturity, we may look at it as um, naivete, we may look at it as impertinence, we may look at it, kind of look back on our lives and go, oh, I did some dumb stuff. But I don't think we look back on our lives as slavery. Now, some of us who maybe have um, darker testimonies, maybe we're more ready to admit that slavery. But I think most of us just look back and go, oh, we were kind of dumb, and here's how I know. We still make jokes about it. Right? We don't make jokes about things that are really serious. Nobody, nobody makes jokes about the Holocaust. Nobody makes jokes about murder. No one makes jokes about... Right? It's, it's serious. We don't make jokes about that stuff. And slavery, Paul says, is a serious thing that we would not make jokes about. And yet for many of us, we look back on our former selves, we look back on sin in our lives, and we make jokes about, ah, oh, remember that time? We were so crazy. No, you were so enslaved, says Paul. Okay, so um, for, for those of you here and, and you're not Christians, then this, this assertion by Paul is um, probably offensive. Right? Because he's saying, not that you were slaved, but you are slave, enslaved. You are slaves to something right now. So I, I think it's a fair question to ask. Is, is, is Paul right? 
Is this a fair assumption? This, this assertion that Paul makes that you were or are enslaved to things that are by nature not gods, lesser things. Right, so most of us, I think, would say, well, I don't know if enslaved, and it was hard, but I don't, I don't know if we were enslaved. Well, um, I think that we were. And, and on my side is Paul, Luther, and the eminent American poet, Bob Dylan, <laughs> who said, you might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage, like Garth. <laughs> you might have money and drugs at your commands, women in a cage. You may be a businessman or some high-degree thief. They may call you doctor, they may call you chief, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Rebecca Pippert, in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, which I highly recommend, said it this way. She said, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. The scriptures give us um, what I think is a really helpful grid for this, and um, Tim Keller in his book Counterfeit Gods kind of draws this out. He says there's three categories, three ways in which we are enslaved or which we can identify our slavery, and that is um, that there are things that we love, things that we trust, and things that we obey. And to love, trust, and obey things that Paul calls things that are not gods, certainly a level of trust, a level of obedience, a level of love is completely appropriate for most of these things. But when it becomes most ultimate, and the thing that we love, trust, and obey more than anything else, it becomes the thing that controls our lives, the thing um, that is our Lord and our slave master. So what do we love? The Bible uses this spousal metaphor, this relational metaphor. We ask ourselves the question, what makes us feel loved? What makes us feel valued, beautiful, confident, secure? What, what makes us be able to puff up our chest in pride? What makes us be able to breathe a sigh of relief because we don't have to put on pretense anymore? We don't have to prove anything because of this thing in our lives. What do we daydream about or imagine? What is that perfect life that we dream about in moments of pause? We rely on this thing or this person's approval to give us the self-worth that we crave. A lot of times this love manifests itself in a person. Sometimes it manifests itself in our bodies. Have you ever been in a party and um, said something that you hoped was funny and then immediately looked at a particular person to see if they laughed? River in the, in the midst of a, 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 maybe a political or some kind of in-depth conversation and you said something that you thought was very insightful and witty and looked directly at that person to see if, if they were like, hmm, that's good, or looking at you like you're crazy? Do you wake up every morning and look at yourself in the mirror and either um, feel calmed by it or feel crazed by it? Does it give and take away your confidence in yourself. These are things that our heart loves, that our heart longs for, that our, that our heart looks for to give it value. They're things that we trust, the religious metaphors of scripture. What brings us peace and security? What, to what do we entrust our future? What do we fear losing the most? 
We believe its promises and so are willing to make sacrifices to appease it. You know, when we hear words like idolatry in the Bible and we, we read stories in ancient literature of idolatry and we, we see people, men and women, going to temples um, to, to worship these carven images and, and sacrifice animals or sacrifice virgins or sacrifice whatever it may be and we look at it and go, that is ridiculous. How could people ever do that? And so we, we, we look at them when we mock them in our minds as um, these uneducated fools, and yet we work 90, 100, 120 hours a week um, to sacrifice our family for the sake of our bank account. Bowing down daily at the altar of money in hopes that we can one day fully breathe that sigh of relief because the dollar amount that we've hoped would be in our bank account is finally there and we can rest because we are secure. There were a lot of people who had that dream dashed in the last five to 10 years with the economy tanking. This was an excellent time for preachers to point out uh, the, the frivolousness, the, the vaporous nature of money, that it can come and it can go. And now the economy is starting to turn. And already some of you are going, see, it always comes back. This, this love of mine, this idol, it always comes back. It'll never fully let me down. And you're already starting to get wooed back into trusting that dollar amount in your account. Lastly, a political metaphor that we obey. Whatever we love and trust, we also serve and obey. We will do whatever it takes to obey and stay in its good graces. And here's how this one manifests itself. We will, we will sacrifice our ethics or the ethics of the Bible in order to continue to pursue and, and attain and keep that which we obey. Right? So we're, we're willing to sacrifice honesty for profit. We're willing to sacrifice truth for relationship. We're willing to use violence to gain power. This is when we know, when, when our ethics start to cross the line and, and, and run against the ethics of Christ, that's when we know that something else is our idol. We are enslaved to something else when we're willing to obey what that asks of us over what Christ asks of us. So these are the important questions that we have to ask ourselves to begin to uproot these idols in our lives and identify what it may be. And all of these things are good. I mean, don't he hear me on this, right? I mean, people are good. Don't, don't, don't try to eradicate people from your life just because you idolize them. Money is good. You need it to pay the bills, right? Some, some of you young guys are like, see, it's good that I'm poor. No, <laughs> get a job, okay? <laughs> that doesn't make you more like Jesus. So um, there, there's... These are good things, but they cannot bear the weight of being at the top of the pyramid. They, they cannot possibly, I mean, Paul calls them in verse 9, weak and worthless things. They're, they're what Solomon calls vapor. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. They are weak. They are not powerful enough to, to fully bear the weight of your trust, love, and obedience. They are not valuable enough for you to entrust your future to them. They're weak and worthless. Paul goes on in verse 9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, 
How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world whose slaves you want to be once more? Now, I've used this illustration probably a thousand times over the last seven years, but, but it's, it's brilliant. So um, there, there was a day for some of us, and, and perhaps for some of you that day is today, um, but there was a day in which we were enslaved. We were in a cage, locked up, shackles on our arms, shackles on our legs, unable to do anything unable to be as free as we want to be. There came a day when Christ came, unlocked the door, unhooked our shackles, and we walked out as free people, finally able to be the people God intended for us to be, that he created us to be. Finally free. And Paul goes, here's what you're doing. In those moments, and there's a million of them every day when you have a moment to obey Christ and walk in line with the truth of the gospel or disobey Christ and walk in line with the wisdom of mankind, you make a decision each and every time that you you choose not to walk with Christ, you are walking back into that cage, holding the door closed, shackling yourself back up, able at any moment to be free and yet willingly walking back into the cage. Paul goes, why do you do this? Why do you do this? It makes no sense. You have been freed from these things. You you have the ability in Christ to be the person God created you to be, to experience the fullness of his power and love and might, to experience the fullness of what it means to be human, to be satisfied in the ways that your heart craves to be satisfied, to be loved, to be joyful, all of it. And yet you willingly choose this. Why? Paul, in in Romans chapter 1, talks about this very issue in a great passage. He says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, so here's what Paul's saying. In those moments when we have a decision to make, and we can either walk in line with Christ or we can walk in line with this world. He goes, in those moments when you walk in line with the world, your unrighteousness, your rebellion suppresses the truth, hides the truth. Ultimately, what you're saying is, Jesus, I know that you say this way is best. I know that you say this way is most satisfying, most joy-filling, most loving, most loved, most peaceful, most everything my heart desires, but you're wrong. It's this way. And so what we know is true. Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, it's not that they were ignorant. It's not that they don't know. It's not not that you don't know. I mean, this, Romans 1 is not something that happened one time. It's something that happens over and over and over and over and over and over. As we go, okay, I, I'm a Christian, 
And so I've acknowledged that this story of the world, this creation, fall, redemption, restoration story, this God created, we're in rebellion, God saves, God's what I need, God's going to bring about the, the final reconciliation of the whole world, that story's actually not true right now. And the answer to this heart longing is this, not this. And we do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And we say, no, no, no. The true story of the world isn't the gospel. The true story of the world is the gospel of money. And the gospel of money says this. We were created for luxury. And there's this particular lifestyle of luxury that I was supposed to live. But, but because of circumstances, because of people around me, it's never our fault. Maybe we made mistakes when we were young. But because of other reasons, we don't have that luxury. We don't have the life that we are supposed to have. But money can provide us the life that we were supposed to have. Money is that redemption that will bring about the restoration, which is the world I was supposed to live in. So money is the savior. Money is the one I trust. Money is the one I love. Money is the one I obey because it's money that will bring about the heaven, the Eden that I long for. And so in these moments, when we have a choice to make, we have a choice not just between should I, should I be honest or should I pursue maximum profits. It's a question of do I believe that the gospel is the true story of the world and that money is just a tool in the hands of a sovereign God or do I believe the gospel of money and that the most ultimate thing I can pursue is the luxury brought about by finances. We make, we make this huge decision. Over and 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 over. Millions of times a day, and we do it without thinking. Because when we are faced with that moment, and this is a conviction I feel deep, deep, deep down in my soul, that the reason that we pursue these weak and worthless things over and over, trusting in things that are not strong enough to provide what they promise, not valuable enough for us to give our lives to, because in that moment, we remain truly unconvinced of the goodness of Christ. We're skeptical. If, if we had a moment of real conversation and dialogue where someone pressed on us and said, listen, do you, do you really think that, that money is going to provide you what God cannot? Do you really think that it would be better for you to Put your life into the hands of money, another person, even worse, yourself, rather than putting your life into the hands of a sovereign God, creator, and sustainer of the universe. I think most of us sane people would go, okay, no. Right? Like, obviously, it's, it's wiser to put our, our life in the hands of a creator, sustainer, God, than, than our own. God's wiser than us and more all-knowing than us and stronger than us and able to bring about ends that we cannot bring about. The problem is we don't, we don't get that far. We make, we make visceral decisions. We make emotional decisions. We make decisions that reflect what is in the deepest, truest parts of our heart. And so in, in each of those moments, we will always choose the thing that we want the most and the thing that we are most confident will bring it about. And so the reason why we keep going back over and over and over the gospel is so that there will come a day where you reach that moment and your flinch, your instinct will be, I trust Christ. 
without having to do mental gymnastics, going, okay, if I really think about it, is a sovereign God better than money? Yeah, okay. No, that, that at, at your deepest, chorus being, you would know that the way of Jesus is the way that your heart will be satisfied. And so, that's what Paul keeps going back to. Going, you still don't get it. Why? Why? Over, I mean, this, this drives Paul crazy. You, you hear it in the next verses, verse 10. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing that you felt? Answer that question. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. It's a weird illustration. (laughs) Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul goes, don't you remember? Don't you remember that moment that the gospel was revealed to you and you went, how have I missed it? Don't, don't you remember even the littler moments when you, when you did choose to follow Jesus and it actually did feel better? It, it actually was truer? It actually did bring about the satisfaction that your heart longed for? It actually was right? Don't you remember all of those moments? And conversely, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 21, he, goes, he says, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? for the end of those things is death. So Paul goes, not only, not only must we remember the, the joy and the blessing and, and the fact that when we do follow Christ that the promises are fulfilled, but, but don't forget either that when you walk down your own path that has ended for you in pain and loneliness and brokenness and death. But Satan does this amazing thing where every time it seems like we've got these decisions to make, it's a blank slate that we don't have the ability to remember easily the great joy and blessing of life with Christ or the pain that we've experienced when we're in rebellion. That it's like every decision is a a clean slate again and we're just kind of trying to figure out, okay, is is Jesus going to be right on this one? Jesus is right on everyone. So Paul goes, don't don't forget the, the glories of the promises of life with Christ. The only way, the only way that that we can come to those moments and over and over and over choose Jesus is if here in our innermost being we are utterly convinced that no matter what the decision is, Jesus is always going to be right. 
and that the cravings that we have to feel valued and to feel loved and to feel at peace and to um, feel to feel cared for all, all of those cravings are cravings that God put in us so that we would search them out to their greatest ends and find him knowing full well that he is the satisfaction of all those needs Thomas Chalmers was a 19th century pastor and he wrote a sermon powerful sermon called the expulsive power of a new affection he says this it is seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws are made to disappear by a mere process of natural extinction at least it is very seldom that it is done through the instrumentality of reasoning or by the mere force of mental determination but what cannot be thus destroyed may be dispossessed and one taste may be made way to give way to another and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of the mind. He says, the heart's desire for having some one object or another, this is unconquerable. Luther called our hearts an idle factory. Our, our hearts were designed to long for love. They were designed to long to give affection to something. And Chalmers says, the only way to dispossess, to change the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power, the ability to expel the expulsive power of a new one. It is when admitted into the number of God's children through the faith that is in Jesus Christ that the spirit of adoption is poured into us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires and is the only way in which deliverance is possible. In other words, the only way to get over an old love is to find a new one. Until then, it festers and longs and hopes and remembers and enslaves you to the past. Perhaps you've been in a situation where you had a really hard breakup and it was, it was painful and it was horrible and in the midst of it, you thought, how, how did I ever like this person? How did I ever love this person? And then somehow six months later, when you're still single, you remember that person so much more fondly. You know, she wasn't that bad. The knife wasn't that long. It, it, it festers and it romanticizes and it, hopes and longs and we we start to go well, well maybe it wasn't maybe maybe it could be or maybe it could change or maybe it'll be better until that new affection comes and we see it in front of us we see the beauty of it we see how much better it is that's the moment where the old affection can be expelled and the new affection can be embraced and change happens paul finishes up in chapter five, verse one. It says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul says, the end of all this is that you become the man or woman of God that God created you to be. God's intention in creation was not that you would have strife and pain and hurt and loss, that was never God's intention for his creation. That it was to be love and acceptance and value, perfect relationship with him and each other and our creation. That, that was God's intention. He goes, that, that is again God's creation or intention for us, for his creation. That we might once again experience the freedom that we were meant to experience in the garden. 
that one day there will be a restoration, and until then, we can incrementally experience more and more and more of the love and the joy and the peace that God has for us. If we can, over and over and over again, follow Christ. Take that baton and run in the same direction. Knowingly enter into the story and live out the implications of the fact that there is a a great God who created us to be perfect. And we rebelled, but God pursued us so that we might one day experience what he wanted us to experience. I'll finish with this from Blaise Pascal. He says, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help. Since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, In other words, by God himself. Let's pray. Lord, I think that in in moments of rationality, in moments of thoughtfulness, when, when pressed, we would all agree that you, creator and sustainer God, sovereign God of the universe, are far more able to govern our lives than we are. Far more trustworthy than any of the things in your creation. Though created good by you for us, they are not you. And that we are fools when we exchange things that you created for you. But Lord, most of the time we don't have that much time to think. And that which our heart is already convinced of reveals itself in our behavior. And so it's moments like this, times in prayer, times in the word, times remembering your promises, times in worship, that our heart can be changed by your spirit and that we can more and more and more naturally, first by discipline, first by intentionality and more and more just naturally choose to follow you because we are convinced of your goodness and your trustworthiness. Lord, I pray that the power of a new affection would expel the old ones and that we would live in line with the truth of the gospel and experience the great blessings of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.